You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of The Prom. Hello, Interweb. My name is Emma Nolan, and I'm 17. You might have heard about The Prom in Indiana. I just want to go to prom like any other kid. All opposed. I know we all have stories to tell, and here's mine. Oh my gosh, check this out. It's all over Twitter. She wanted to take her girlfriend to the high school prom. And the PTA went apeshit and they canceled it. We have got to go down there. Yes. Raise holy hell. We will be the biggest thing to happen in Indiana since whatever's happened in Indiana. We have come to this community on behalf of a young girl. I just want to dance with you. I'm sorry, who are you people? We are from Broadway. I just wanna dance with you. We're not monsters. We're cultural disruptors. Your beliefs are not our beliefs. You don't know this town. I thought that when my parents rejected me, that I would never feel any worse. I've never felt so alone in my life. But you're not alone. And you do have friends. Where are they? Okay, people, this is the part where we roll up our sleeves and we put on a prom with our own bare hands. I just don't understand it. Well, I think it's brave. Let's get this party started! It's time to build a prom for everyone. Take a stand for all the people out there who love someone in a way the world just doesn't understand. Okay, I admit that got to me. It's time to. Alright everybody, you were just listening to the trailer for The Prom, and the story is as follows. To support a high school girl who wants to bring her girlfriend to The Prom, a group of self-obsessed theater stars go to a small, conservative Indiana town. The film is starring Meryl Streep, James Corden, Nicole Kidman, Keegan-Michael Key, Andrew Reynolds, Ariana DeBose, Carrie Washington, and Joellen Pellman. It is directed by Ryan Murphy, written by Chad Beguilin, and Bob Martin. Here to join me for this podcast review, I have Cody Derricks. Hello. Dan Baer. Good morning. Tom O'Brien. Hi, everybody. Michael Schwartz. Hello, everyone. And Nicole Ackman. I can't wait to get confused every time someone on this podcast says Nicole, and I think for a half a second they're thinking about me. <laughs> Imagine <laughs> if I just said, like, in the beginning, like, oh, and Nicole Kidman <laughs> joining us on the podcast today. <laughs> All right, everyone. So another Netflix film coming now during the holiday season from Ryan Murphy. This is the adaptation of The Prom, a Tony Award nominated play. And for that reason, we've got a bunch of theater experts here today to talk to us about how that adaptation is translated over from the stage to the screen. And why don't we kick it off first with 
Tom O'Brien. Ah, well, I'm not one of those theater experts. Exactly. That's why I wanted to hear from you first. <laughs> uh, I, but but I, I really admire the work of uh, uh, previous work of some of the people behind the scenes here. Bob Martin, particularly. He is a very funny writer. And Casey Nicola, who um, directed the stage show, is doing the choreography for this particular production. So I, I went in there really, really looking forward to it. Uh, it, it, it Michael, in one tweet had said that it's the little show that could. And I think the key phrase there is little show. It's, uh, and now that they've translated to the screen, uh, it doesn't, it just feels like that little show is being smothered by the over-caffeinated direction of Ryan Murphy. Good Lord, that opening number of Changing Lives, that just, just, you know, they're in your face and we don't even know these people yet. So I wish they had just dialed it back a little bit because it took me a long time to get back into the story. Um, there are some really wonderful performances here. A few, I think, miscastings. Um, I won't get into James Corden yet, but I think that Nicole Kidman, they, I wish they would have cast someone who was a little more understudy-ish in the film world rather than a star. But mm. uh, nonetheless, uh, I have no no quarrel with the performances, and I think the film at times is at its best uh, in the dialogue scenes. Uh, we can all take a breather during those. Um, I'm mixed on it, but I'd be anxious to see how what uh, everybody else says about it. All right, all right, and I guess I will bookend this with the uh, non-theater uh, film only reaction. So let's uh, pack all the theater reactions here in the middle. Let's hear first from. Michael Schwartz. Yeah, so I have been anticipating this film for a very long time since I saw it on Broadway in summer 2020. Uh, sorry, not tw there was nothing on Broadway summer 2020. <laughs> summer 2019. <laughs> oh my goodness. Wishful <laughs> thinking. <laughs> yes, I saw it last summer, summer 2019 on Broadway at the Longacre Theater with our very own Casey Lee Clark, who couldn't be on today, but uh, she saw it with me, and we had a blast seeing the prom. Uh, it was that little show that could. It came from regional theater in Atlanta and carved out its own space on Broadway was not a big hit. It got Tony nominations, but just couldn't sustain itself financially and closed after less than a year. So when it was announced that Ryan Murphy was choosing this as one of his big Netflix projects and giving it a big $100 million budget with Meryl Streep and Nicole Kidman and James Corden and all these big people and a big glitzy set, I was interested to see what that would look like, taking this little show and putting it on that grand scale. And I have to say, even with the nitpicks that I have with this movie, and I certainly do have nitpicks with it, it worked for me. I enjoyed seeing it on this larger than life scale and seeing how this book that I think was so terrific on Broadway did a lot of heavy lifting in the transfer. I think that combined with the performances allows people to see this material that's so good on its own just in any capacity. So it doesn't have the energy of the show. It's not nearly as good as the show, but I'm glad it exists and I had a fun time and I'm happy to dive into what worked, what didn't and hear what everyone else has to say. All right, let's hear next from Nicole Ackman. So those who listen to our MBT episode about the prom will know that I love this musical a lot. I saw it pretty early on in its run, and I think it's a gorgeous show. I think it's a really heartfelt show. And this movie is the perfect example of why I generally am not excited whenever I find out that one of my favorite musicals is being made into a movie. It, I feel, took so much of the heart out of the show. I feel like there's some 
big casting problems in it, uh, mainly James Corden, but some others as well. That said, I do think that there is some good in it still, and at the heart of it, a lot of the good comes from the fact that it is still The Prom, although a lesser version of The Prom than was on Broadway. And I do think there's a handful of very good performances, but it was a huge disappointment for me. And it has made me look forward to uh, The Prom, which is supposed to go on national tour eventually. And I feel like I need to cleanse myself after this movie. Okay. Cody Derricks. So although I am part of the next best theater uh, brood that has invaded this podcast, much like a group of actors invading small town Indiana, I'm not somebody who's really... (laughs) I like what you did there. That was good. It's like the movie The Prom, which is on Netflix now. Um, (laughs) I have a familiarity with this source material, but I never saw it. I've only listened to the cast album a small handful of times. So I went into this with fairly low allegiance to the source material, if that makes sense. And also not a humongous knowledge of where the story would be going. And I even still have to agree with Nicole. I just feel like so much was missing from this adaptation. It took a show that is so earnest and, um, but also has this buoyancy to it and really just weighed it down in like jewel tone color, colored sequins. And I love the sequin. Don't get me wrong, but like, my God, uh, I think, Ryan Murphy's direction is fairly abominable. (laughs) He cannot shoot a musical number for the life of him. Um, The look of the movie is just kind of, it, it looks like the type of show that they are making fun of in the opening number, like self-indulgent and over the top and not really aware of its own ability to tell a story. And like most metatextually evident is that in the casting of James Corden, which is kind of, it's so much of a problem that it pretty much brings down the movie with him. That being said, I really liked Meryl in this. I think it's probably the best she's sounded in a musical, which is, you know, she's done a a lot of them in the past decade. Um, I thought Ariana DeBose was an amazing revelation. I'm so excited now to see her in West Side Story. And some of the musical numbers were fun, but they were mostly undercut by Ryan Murphy's complete lack of faith in the source material, which we can get into later, but it's just, it, he seemed really just unable, unable to trust what the text was uh, doing for the story and needed to kind of hold the audience's hand the entire time. All right. Dan Bear. I have so many questions for the people who made this movie because I, you know, like, like anyone who's listened to the next best theater podcast, uh, will know I really love this show on Broadway so much. I saw it twice and I cried like a baby and stood up with a standing ovation, you know, the second it ended both times. And this is, (laughs) it's called the prom and it has the same plot as the prom and the same songs as the prom and a lot of the same lines of dialogue as the prom, but it is not the prom as I know it. And which, you know, that is fine. If you want to adapt something and turn it into something different, that's, you know, we can talk about that, about the process of adaptation and how you make something that worked on stage work on film. And there are lots of different ways to do that, but nearly every specific way they chose to do that for this movie makes no sense to me, especially considering that, you know, Ryan Murphy was so passionate about 
turning this particular musical into a movie musical because he grew up in small town Indiana and was gay and I'm assuming didn't get to go to the prom with the boy he had a crush on. But like probably every single choice they made from the casting on down put just the tiniest little crack in the source material. And by the time the movie is, you know, finished, it's completely shattered. And I do not understand most of the choices they made. Um, I think casting Nicole Kidman as a chorus girl to James Corden's massive Broadway star is perverse in a way that Nicole Kidman makes work, but like breaks the entire rest of the movie. Um, I think James Corden is a phenomenally underwhelming, phenomenally misguided piece of casting that does not speak well to anyone involved in the process. And I just have so many questions for the editors, for the people who did the lighting, for the cinematographer, for the fucking sound people. How, 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 how have musicals been around since the advent of sound technology, but we still have not learned how to properly mix a musical so that it sounds like the people are actually singing? Well, I mean, there's Les Mis. <laughs> I, yeah, fine. One musical in over 100 years. Well, I musicals mean, have done it. This one like, chooses not to. This one, it, it's so, so, so bad. There And there are so many little things, little things that like, you know, Ryan Murphy, you could have gotten the basics of making a movie musical well before you decided to try to go for the advanced stuff like no 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 you do not get to go to the advanced stuff until you've mastered the basics and like even stupid things like there there are moments when there are there is a lyric in a song that calls out for an obvious piece of blocking or choreography or something and they don't do that if if you can't do that most basic thing, like if you can't have dancers literally do a ball change when they say the phrase ball change, what are you doing directing a musical? Yeah, they lock eyes and stand frighteningly still. I have been I, thinking about that ever since I watched it. <laughs> I, I don't understand that. I don't think the movie even has a consistent internal logic about when it decides to go full on fantasy and when it doesn't, I, and I have so many questions and I, I don't think this podcast will help me answer them because none of you were involved in making the film, but I just, I I'm so disappointed in this movie and in most of the people making it. I do agree with Cody. I think Meryl is, this is probably her best musical performance, although she still has not learned how to lip sync properly to look like she's actually singing and i do think nicole kidman is fun and ariana debose is great but unfortunately hamstrung by the choice to speed up her big number i i don't understand i don't understand i have some questions too um you know they range from how can you not tell it's going to be empty inside the school gym when you're in the damn parking lot yes Thank you. There's also other questions like, is any principal's office in the world that big? <laughs> I, I just like. No. He doesn't have a it that big. 
desk. I wasn't. He doesn't have a monitor. He doesn't have a computer at that desk either. And I, I, I'm just like, it's only big for the sake of we need to have a musical number in this space. Anyway. I, I have more I have more questions, but I, I'm sure they will get answered later on. My, my thoughts really range from I'm a mixed bag on this because I do think that there are some good performances. I think there are some bad performances. There are some musical numbers I really do like, and then there are some musical numbers I really don't like. There are some stylistic choices in terms of the crafts of this movie, which I also like. And then there are some that are just completely weighing down the flow of the movie and also my complete enjoyment of it in terms of tone. And I think it all comes back to Ryan Murphy's direction of it. There is a lack of consistency in performances, in how much they're dialed up to an 11 to then when they need to have these more dramatic scenes with each other, they are completely lacking in any kind of nuance. And because of that, and this movie's dealing with some really complex issues on a personal level, which should be speaking to lots of people out there and emotionally connecting with them, just as I'm sure the show did. But this movie instead is taking the route of, we're going to Disneyfy, Disneyfy, rather, <laughs> uh, Gleeify. We are going to play this to the lowest common denominator of audience entertainment without any subtlety, without any emotional complexity or nuance. Why? Because we just want to tell a feel-good movie. And you know what? Fine. I've got nothing against people that watch this movie and take something enjoy enjoyable out of it. That's totally fine. I don't think that this is an abomination of a movie or anything like that. No, God, no. I, James Corden, on the other hand, uh, but, but like, regardless of that, I, I think that this movie just isn't for me. And that's okay because, you know, Greatest Showman also wasn't for me, uh, but it was for millions of other people out there. And, you know, th these types of musicals nowadays, nowadays, like in terms of their style, their presentation, it just feels like that that seems to be the norm now, and it's not hearkening back to the types of musicals that I loved when I was growing up. And, you know, if that's a if that's a trend, fine, it is what it is. But I think that there are better movies to be made. I think there are better storytellers out there that are more capable of telling such powerful stories. I think that this type of entertainment, uh, while it can be as uh, my favorite... My favorite line in the movie, uh, a distraction is momentary and escape helps you heal. If for some people, if this is an escape for them, great, not taking that away. But man, oh man, was I completely distracted by a lot that was going on in here. And the thing with like the greatest showman, and I cannot believe I'm about to compare something favorably to the greatest showman, but <laughs> that at least has a unity of tone and the yes. tone and energy of that is cocaine. And this is... <laughs> <laughs> the prom it wants to have its cake and eat it too it wants to be like flashy and exuberant but then kind of be like well why aren't you crying audience and it's like well because you're not you haven't given me the proper tools to know that's what i should be doing in this moment and again that's that's direction when you talk about the tone and consistency there are moments here that played so much smoother on stage that when they translate to film i felt like there were moments where the energy just stopped dead in its tracks and that shouldn't be with this material. So there are things to attribute to Ryan Murphy and choices that he makes as a director and choices he made in the editing bay 
that just don't transfer the same way that they would have played on stage. And that's why I say it's not nearly as impactful on film, even though there are moments that really do work. They're really trying to go for the heart in some scenes. And, you know, I I think this is actually kind of a good place to start since we do have some experts on here that are familiar with the source material. Um, I've been told that the stuff involving Barry and his uh, parents, uh, mainly uh, Tracy Ullman, I-, I heard that was all added for the movie. That's correct, right? All added. Yes. So that scene in particular where she comes out of nowhere and they're both really bad in that oh scene. Both gosh, of them. Terrible. terrible. I love Tracy Ullman. She's a comedic genius, but I don't know what was going on there. It was like the accent was out of place. Seeing her felt out of place. It was at a weird she time. She gets the movie. very emotional during one line reading. And it's yeah. just like, I can't, it kind of comes out of nowhere. And I, like I said, I lay this at the feet of Ryan Murphy, where I think he's directing some of these performers to very bad performances at times. And it's it's very upsetting because, um, Tom, you mentioned how the opening number, the Eleanor musical bit, is just so dialed up to an 11 and it's so campy and everyone is delivering all of their lines like with a wink to the camera, if you will. And it's like somewhere along the lines in the movie, they kind of want us to forget about that uh, that that stage setter, and they want us to accept that now. Oh no, we're going to explore these characters' personal lives, and we're going to get really heavy with some of this, and they're going to cry, and it, and it just it doesn't flow. It does not work. And there, those scenes are also padded out a little bit. There's a moment in a hotel room between uh, Meryl Streep and James Corden, doesn't and exist on stage, for the stage show doesn't exist. Right. Right. Doesn't exist. And I understand the opportunity to explore that a little deeper. And if the scene had been maybe two or three minutes, that would have been fine. But I thought, again, it just stopped the movie dead in its tracks. And I just kept it was like its own short film. Yeah, it was was terrible. For the life of me, couldn't figure out why they seem to be trying to get me to care about like the character of Dee Dee's ex-husband and her divorce. Because they really want you to buy into her new relationship with Keegan Michael Key, and individually, I like them both, yeah. you know, performance-wise. But they have zero chemistry together as a pair. No, well, I could have bought into that, that without no. any of that background information and stuff. I truly was like, can we get back to the actual plot every time they tried to go into that? Oh. And that hotel room scene begins with her talking about her ex-husband, and then they thought, okay, it's done, and then we get into Corden his mother. And it's like this is this is endless. It's it's so it's so bad. And look, I this is why I bring up the whole question of adaptation because there are ways to adapt stage shows to film that work. Every choice that they made here to change something is is potentially show breaking. And it starts with the very like structure of the show itself. Look, I mean, because that opening number is is kind of the same in the show. It is very over the top. It's very ironic. It's very nudge, nudge, wink, wink. And I totally get that too, because they are trying to set these characters up as narcissists who are in it for the publicity. And there's a lot of meta lines. And I get get it. But it's how you transition from that to the rest of the story that's the problem. Exactly. And the whole point of the show is that Everything that happens in Indiana is very grounded and real, and it reminds these larger-than-life, out-of-touch Broadway actors about what is real in the world and sort of brings them back to their 
back to themselves as people as opposed to these manufactured personas. And the movie plays everything at a high pitch because Ryan Murphy is incapable of directing it anything less than an 11. And it, it doesn't work because it doesn't allow for that that those two tones to play off each other and find a middle ground is that when you're, when you're working at, you know, you know, there's a huge difference between meeting in the middle when you're working at like a five and a 10 to when you're working at a zero and an 11 and that's the difference here. And they can't, he there, he is working with tones that are already very, very far apart from each other, but they found some, alchemy in the performances and direction on stage to make it work and here he's pushed them even far apart with some performers who are not as capable as the broadway performers were and a director who just doesn't know how to do anything in moderation i think that what's interesting too is that there are some scenes that on stage were quite intimate which it's funny whatever you think like a film should be able to do intimacy better than a Broadway stage production. Correct. <laughs> the biggest example of that, I think, is Barry's Going to the Prom, which is uh, James Corden's big number, I suppose you could say, which on stage is sort of this almost, I don't want to call it introspective because it is, you know, a, a big performance bit, but it is him sort of reacting to this news in his hotel room and the way that they blew it up in the film I felt made it feel so cheesy and I think the thing about the prom is that a lot of it teeters on cheesy anyways and if it's staged correctly like it was on Broadway it can actually still feel quite heartfelt whereas I just felt like so much of this movie it teetered over into a bad glee episode instead um and like there's a lot of things that contribute to that as well like the sound mixing but I, I feel like Ryan Murphy was not never able to do the intimate parts of the show well. And so it just felt really in your face the entire time. Two things I'm going to say to that really quickly. Um, I I actually like Corden. The only time I did not. Uh, the only time, yeah, I really. Yeah, it is. It's the only time I like Corden in the show is actually in Tonight Belongs to You. I, I, I didn't like Barry's going to the prom, uh, like you said, Nicole, but. I actually could stand Corden in that other number. And the only scene or only moments in this movie where I really felt a sense of true empathy, purity, and honesty in performances and tone were, well, actually, you know what? It's two scenes. Uh, sorry, two scenes. It's between Joellen Pelleman and Ariane DeBose. Um, I, I thought that their scenes together, uh, especially Dance With You, uh, was lovely, beautiful. And Nicole Kidman as Angie, whenever she gets grounded with um, with Emma and is really just kind of honing in on her empathy for what she's going through uh, during her more emotional bits. Those were like the really only the only two points in the movie where I genuinely felt something. Nicole Kidman is the best friend we all 
need and deserve I in our want, lives. <laughs> I want someone, actually, I, I just want Nicole Kidman to look at me yeah. the way that she looks at Joellen in this. <laughs> the way that she presents that scene when she's talking about uh, the flu that took out the cast of Chicago in 1975, and she's like starting up the number, it is so reminiscent of, intentionally intentionally so, uh, of Chicago and Roxy Hart. Right. Uh, the number Roxy in the middle there, she's like building the whole thing up. And it's so funny because it's supposed to be like a Fosse number. And Nicole Kidman was in talks to play Roxy in the 2002 version of Chicago. So that was just like a nice little nod to see there. It also wouldn't surprise me if she was in uh, the running to play Dee Dee in this, if I'm being completely honest with you. Yeah, she doesn't have the voice. Because uh, you mentioned before, I think it was you, Dan, who it was like Nicole Kidman is instead playing this character and it feels slightly off, but she makes it work. I would be willing to wager that she auditioned for Dee Dee Allen and they they went with Meryl over her, probably. Well, no, I think the whole joke is that it's someone who's Nicole's stature stuck as a chorus girl for years. And uh, she's passed over for Tina Louise from uh, Gilligan's Island as Roxy Hart. It's like Mm -hmm. this woman is Nicole Kidman and Tina Louise is in Chicago. Like, that's the big joke there. But But I think she's a lot of fun. They didn't need to add that joke. Like, that was not a joke in in the show on Broadway. It's something that they added. And look, no, Nicole, Nicole Kidman is... No, Angie Schwarer is not a big star. No, no I'm talking about a Tina Louise joke. No, I'm talking about the joke of Nicole Kidman playing the role. Oh, oh okay. That, that's something that they didn't need to add. And like, Nick, yes, Nicole Kidman is probably the most fun of the leads in this show, in this, in this film, but, like, <laughs> there are so many other casting choices that would have made more sense. Dan has uh, heard me go on and on and on about for literally weeks now how much I wish they cast, like, Jane Krakowski in this role. Yeah. Someone who is a little bit more of someone that you could buy as being stuck in the ensemble. Whereas, like, I'm so sorry, but there is no universe where I believe that Nicole Kidman is stuck in the ensemble. When she says she has a line that, like, no one ever sees me because I'm just a chorus girl. And I'm like... Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> You're Nicole Kidman. <laughs> like that's why I said like it's kind of perverse that she like it's perverse casting that she makes work because she sort of embraces the absurdity of it, but yeah. the film as a whole suffers for it and I feel like that is sort of the um a, a consistent problem that they make individual choices that on their own don't seem so bad or that they're able to make work. But when you look at those individual choices in the whole picture of the film and add them up, mm-hmm. it it breaks the material. I just want to point out that we are making a lot of mentions of in the stage show this and they change that. And I'm not somebody who really cares if you change stuff from adaptation as long as it is justified and improves right. the material in a way of that you're, you know, it's something to do with the the medium of film that you can't do on stage or vice versa. Because one of the greatest movie musicals of all time, Cabaret, is completely different from the stage show. Yes. So that's, you know, that's, <laughs> I don't want to say it's allowed, but like it's it's something that you can do and be successful and this just doesn't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you, need, you need a vision for that to work. And I, I, I really think that the cumulative effect of all of these mistakes from the very beginning makes the last act. It's like, Oh my God, what's going to happen this time? What are they going to do wrong? And, uh, I was, you know, it was just kind of weary from all of the, uh, uh, 
um, screw ups. It also should have been 15 minutes uh, shorter as well, probably like in the edit. I do think the film goes on maybe just a little bit too long. I don't think I would have cut out any of the musical numbers, although that's debatable if you guys feel like there's something that could have been cut. Well, they already cut one of them. Basically, there's a song called the acceptance song, which is when they're at a monster truck (laughs) rally. And it's one of the great moments in the show. And that oh, I do like the edit, though, from that, actually, of how they transitioned from uh, Dee Dee about to go out to then her crying on the couch about how awful it was. I okay. did like that. That's one of the few places where I'm like, this, this is the reason to make this into a movie, because we can't yes. have the actual monster trucks on the stage. And then they only spent like a minute there. And I was like, come on, guys. But honestly, the way to fix the length of this film is very easy. And it's to cut out all the added Barry mom scenes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, you're right. Cut them out. You've got a better movie and a shorter movie because God, I felt like this film went on forever. Yeah. And not to mention too, you know, you would had Corden, I think, maybe coming across like a little bit more comfortable because we know the guy can sing, you know, but like, when he's trying to stretch himself dramatically in some of these other scenes here, uh, he you can tell that it's just, it's not his wheelhouse, you know? And he's not believable. It's not coming across as, I mean, the whole performance is really not that believable, in my opinion. It is a performance in every sense of the word. And whereas, right. you know, like, I mean, Meryl is also giving a performance in every sense of the word, but that works for that character. And in the case of James Corden, he is putting on this performance. And part of Barry is a performance that he is putting on that slowly gets, you know, he it gets stripped away over the course of the thing by his interacting with this girl who is so representative of, you know, what he was when he was a teenager to him. Um, but it he goes he's he goes from one cliche of this limp wristed lisping fabulous gay man to the other opposite end of the gay spectrum of cliche to someone who never got over the fact that his parents didn't love him and cries and has a teary reunion and can't deal with it and all this and i despite the fact that he just doesn't play it well when you look at this movie and you look at the material and you look at the message of this show, which is all about having pride in who you are and sharing your truest self in the world, his casting is borderline offensive. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. 
head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. I'm going to jump off from there because I also, as a gay man, have a lot of thoughts about this casting. I'm not somebody who thinks that every single role needs to be played by somebody who lines up with their sexuality. Yes. But no, I what agree. I will say <laughs> is what I will say is that because there's plenty of times in history where straight men have played gay characters with pathos and power and it's really impactful. I'm thinking of, you know, Tom Hanks in Philadelphia is the obvious one. And like, you know, he's an asshole, but Sean Penn's amazing in milk. Like it it can be done. And yeah, he fledged and broke back. Exactly. And the thing with James Corden here is I was struck by, um, a comparison that I made during the movie was, uh, Dan Levy in, Happiest Season, who has a similar scene at the end where he has a monologue about um, the difficulty he had in coming out and reconciling that with his family. And the thing that Dan Levy brings, because he is a gay man, is a level of understanding and uh, 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 an implied awareness of exactly the weight of what he's talking about. And again, that's not to say that James Corden couldn't have accomplished that. I think he just... I don't know what his research was or something, but he's going for the most <laughs> obvious choice here, which is to be wailing and crying and uh, at a 10 on every moment. And sorry, most gay people don't act like that. You know, if you're in your 40s like he is, I, I, I'm i going to assume you are not going to wail and cry at every mention of your, you know, like uh, your, your upbringing. There, every gay person I know who had a difficult coming out process is at the point, even in their 20s, where it's, you know, just a part of them. It's not, it doesn't define them, and they can even make a joke about it. It's not something they cry every day about. It just, it, it reads as false and opportunistic. But Cody, there's a line of dialogue where he's as gay as a bucket of wigs. <gasps> a bucket of wigs! It just doesn't work coming from him. And I promise to go in with an open mind and consider his performance you know, on the surface as it was. I know a lot of people had their knives out before they even saw the movie based on his casting alone, but I wanted to give him a chance because I know he's a capable performer who's done some really great things in the past. I like his late night show. He's a Tony winner. I know he has it in him, but it is just so wrong seeing him here. He feels out of place in every scene and even his usual chops as a talented performer just don't come through here because you're just so uncomfortable watching him. The accent doesn't work. He's prancing around the mall like Mike Pence getting off the plane in Georgia for this rally. Like it was, <laughs> like, it was really uncomfortable for me to watch. And look, I can't speak to what it's like, you know, as a gay person watching this. But I think what Cody just brought up about Tom Hanks in Philadelphia or Sean Penn and Milk, you know, they're obviously dramatic performances. But you look at like Robin Williams in the Birdcage; he makes it work. This just felt like such yeah. a stereotype that he was leaning into. I was wondering if they could have like brought Ridley Scott in to do reshoots and put Nathan Lane in the role because that's what I was looking forward to from the second that this movie was even announced. I think Nathan Lane would have been perfect here. He also fits uh, the role more as like Merle's counterpart. There's a big age gap there and I just didn't buy them as friends. I also think that it's, um, you know, I'm not someone who believes, like we've said, that all gay roles need to be played by gay actors. But I do think that occasionally there is a role that A, will just ring truer with a gay actor in it, but also B, the role of Barry scoots very close to cliche stereotype anyways. And I think that with a role like that, um, 
you know, having seen it on Broadway with Brooks Ashmanskis, wow, it's hard to say early in the morning, in the role, um, with him it was very clear that this is a actor playing a character who is gay and has these characteristics, whereas it felt like James Corden was playing gay. Um, and I just, I don't know. I honestly, like, James Corden yeah. being in this role and giving that performance took at least a solid three points off of my rating for this movie alone, just based on that. I think it comes down to, you know, the distinction that we're talking about here in regards to, you know, could it have worked? Why would it have worked with another actor? I think some of it is definitely uh, Corden's fault. I also think some of it is Murphy's fault and how he directs the performance. And I also think, too, the thing that those other characters uh, have in those other movies that we're mentioning is not just stronger direction, but better writing as well. And I think you need a combination of all three, actor's performance, the writing, and the direction, so that this way you can sell a straight man playing gay. Flip that around, too, a gay man playing straight. You know, I mean, I think you need a combination of all three if you're going to get audiences to buy in, because otherwise they're bringing in their preconceived notions and what we know about these celebrities into the experience and you know Corden already had an uphill battle in that regard with many of us so yeah no it's true I just wish they they could have brought in an actor like Titus Burgess or Mm. someone who could really Titus would have been so good you know it's just uh, the the flamboyance is part of who he is rather than him having to create an outside character the way Corden did. Um, now, I do want to transition over to Merrill because I do agree with what has been said that this is actually my favorite musical performance by Merrill. I think that her uh, big numbers in this are just tremendous and she really, really does uh, an incredible job, especially during Not About Me. Uh, I think her camp is dialed up to the right amount. I think that the scenes where she needs to have a little bit more subtlety and nuance. Once again, I think the problem there is more so Murphy. But I think of all the actors in this movie, I think that she handles her scenes where she needs to go from being, um, as we mentioned before, winking at the camera, very, very big and all of her head movements, body movements, like her physicality and her performance to then just kind of reeling it in. I I think she is the one that transitions through all of that the best. Um, What did you guys think uh, of Meryl in this? It's no surprise, but I I really thought she was brilliant here. And I say that not just because it's Meryl, but because having seen Beth Level do it on stage, I feel like Meryl channeled so much of that energy in a way that I found really uncanny. Uncanny. She can't hit the same notes as Beth Level because she's a big Broadway belter, but she comes as close as any non-Broadway person can. And I found that to be really tremendous. She's really working in the same mode as a Madeline Ashton in Death Becomes Her. Like you were reminded of Sweet Bird, the musical. And I think that works. Like it fits the character. It's like Madeline Ashton meets Patti LuPone. And I found that really entertaining. Uh, She hits the dramatic notes, even though the scenes might be bogged down. I think she is able to carry it as a performer. It's really one of my favorite performances of the year because I think she just finds the right note, both in terms of singing and dramatic, dramatically. And she just carries it through and I've always admire her when she's working in the style and hits it out of the park. She is absolutely, you know, she's as good as she always is in this part. But again, like there are just some little things about like filming a musical that 
bog her down because Ryan Murphy can't get them right. There is there is a moment in um, It's Not About Me where she... <laughs> I mean, there's a lot about that number that doesn't make sense. But there is a moment very early on where the way she is speaking a line does not match what she's doing on the soundtrack. And it is so jarring and takes me right out of the moment. And there are moments like that that happened throughout the this in terms of the sound mix, the combination of the sound mixing and the performers. There, there is a moment in... Um, uh, we look to you, Keegan Michael Key's number, mm-hmm. where his voice completely changes from one yeah. note to the next, and it 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 makes like all like he sounds natural and nice, and then the next note he sounds robotic and auto tuned. I didn't know that he could even sing, like regardless. But maybe to your point, Dan, that's the thing is that like he kind of can't sing well and so they had to go in and modulate a little bit to adjust obviously i bought him as this small town high school principal who had a love for theater but maybe wasn't involved with theater like the guy who sings show tunes in a shower and he sounded like a guy who like would sing them as an amateur and i think that carried through and felt appropriate even if i wouldn't cast keegan michael key as the lead of a big over-the-top musical yeah, the what we were talking about with the sound mixing, the Ryan Murphy sound mixing has been bothering me for 10 freaking years ever since Glee took yeah. over the world. It's this processed um, quality to the sound that makes everything sound both smaller in uh, like uh, volume, but louder in space, if that makes sense. I can't really describe exactly what it sounds like. You just have to hear it for yourself. No, if you listen to this movie like with an enhanced audio system, yeah. with a surround or a bar or something, I, I totally get that, Every Cody. single entrance to a musical number is jarring <laughs> in the worst way. I most noticed it during the acceptance song, where Andrew Randalls is wearing a visible mic like you would in an arena, and he intros the song, and it sounds like a normal person talking, and they start singing into the same microphone but he sounds like a robot yes yes it's so it's so bad and there um there is even like when um during my during my favorite number of the or my favorite or second favorite number of the show depending on the day um unruly heart which is emma's big number she it's the same thing she is like talking and she's recording herself on a webcam to upload to youtube and She's she gives this little speech beforehand and she sounds like a normal person and then she starts singing and it sounds like so noticeably different and it's just like really you can't make this sound like it's a continuation like there's a way to process a voice and auto-tune it so that it sounds like a natural extension of a person's speaking voice and there's a and then there's this and and then that again that brings me to like the film's internal logic because she is very clearly you know playing this song on her guitar in her bedroom you know without any backing tracks or anything and it you know blows up into this big thing as as you know you would expect a musical number in a musical to do but then at the for the very last line of the song we switch to um, the Broadway people, Meryl and James Corden, Nicole Kidman, and Kika Michael Key, the adults, watching it on a computer, and it is fully orchestrated. Mm. So 
did she is she somehow a musical genius and did a whole backing track for herself <laughs> yeah that or or is it just supposed to be her in her bedroom playing her guitar or ryan murphy subscribes to the belief that as soon as we go into a musical number it's fantasy and all bets are off and i can do whatever i want as a filmmaker but no but no because there it blocks it the movie breaks on that front too, because like, okay, I can get behind the idea that, uh, you happened the promposal number. I can get behind the idea that that is all, you know, really happening in heavy, heavy, heavy air quotes. But then you have love thy neighbor, which Andrew Rand knocks out of the park, but it takes place in the mall and there's no fancy colored light changes. It is all played as though this is really happening and that goes back to the inconsistency of yeah, tone exactly. yeah. and there is a moment in there's a moment in nicole kinman's big numbers as when you know she's doing this monologue like michael was talking about earlier that's very roxy hart-ish about the you know the um one of the out-of-town trats of chicago and there's music and then there's a moment where the music stops and for like two lines nicole and joanne pumman who plays elma are just talking to each other but the lights are still these ugly candy coated things like that is a moment where it it snaps her out of what she's doing in this monologue and brings her back into real life for two seconds and the number doesn't do that they don't do that with the cinematography or lighting or production design and like if you can't get that one thing right about filming a music movie musical then you shouldn't be making a music musical yeah, I don't know why the, every musical number is lit like they're on a party bus. It's, it's <laughs> he's trying to do. That, he's obviously true. trying to do a transportive like. No, no, this is the musical time. But like Dan said, it's inconsistent, yeah. um, and it's not enough of a change to really impact the viewing experience and go like, oh wow, fantasy time. Because the, like you said, there's inconsistent number moments where that's not true. You know, this isn't Chicago where every musical number is delineated into like live performance or fantasy, and yeah. it's not helped by. Brian Murphy's constant, constant cutting away in the musical middle, middle of musical numbers to show what they're singing about, which Thank you. just shows a complete distrust in both the material and the actor in a way that makes me question yeah. why you wanted to make this. You know, you don't need to cut away from freaking Meryl Streep to show the thing that she's performing. You don't even need to cut away from Ariana DeBose selling the fuck out of the best song in the show to show the things she's talking about because it just lessens the impact of what they're singing uh, about. I um, and This goes back to what I said in my opening, which is that the movie plays to the lowest common denominator of audience out there where it doesn't trust the audience like you were saying there, Cody. And like, you know, the reason why uh, I, I groaned when Love Thy Neighbor came up, I, I think it's like the worst song in the movie. It, it's by far the worst song in the show. <laughs> oh, I Because of how lazy it serves uh, in terms of writing, because Andrew Reynolds sings this song to these characters who are seemingly very firm in their beliefs of how they view gay people and then all of a sudden change of heart by the end because why the movie needs us to get there carrie washington who we haven't uh discussed yet has a complete change of heart by the end of the movie that we've seen before in other movies it's a cliche at this point uh because her daughter has come out and because she's her daughter she has this change of heart because why Movie needs to end. We need to wrap up and we have to give a feel-good ending. And it's lacking the emotional complexity of what could have made this a much more profound movie for people out there. And we we, oh, we just want to tell a nice movie that's going to make people feel good. I'm sorry, but like 
that's that is fine but you have all these other inconsistencies that bog you down if that was your only goal then just focus on that before we get too far down that topic which i do want to explore i want to go back to what cody was saying about cutting away during some of the songs because when i saw this on stage my favorite number in the whole show was the ladies improving i thought that was a great number for Didi. and even though it's great to hear merle perform in here the way that ryan murphy cut from the scene in the principal's office over to the performance uh that principal hawkins saw in a was something about the moon the show that he first saw DD in yeah i uh, saw the moon it was it, it just didn't fit and it felt like you were trying to put that chicago framing device into just a few scenes and it just felt so random and out of nowhere and i would have rather just focused on merle doing her thing in the office than going back to seeing her and she looks fantastic in the costumes i love the costume design in this movie by lou Ehrich. and the, uh, and the they, red hair is actually yeah looks the good. red hair uh, yeah her the hairstyling was absolutely fantastic. I enjoyed looking at it, but not in that scene. It just did not work one bit. I thought the only time that edit worked was during We Look to You, and you see Keegan-Michael yeah. Key walking into the theater and experiencing this for the first time, and I thought that was actually really beautiful. Yes. But the edit in The Ladies Improving, the edits in Barry's Going to Prom, I thought that was just terrible, and I get that it was you know, just trying to be intentionally cheesy, but Barry going to prom with his younger self just, you know, made me want to fast forward through what was another one of my favorite songs from the show. I, I'm a fan of this movie. I know I'm criticizing a lot of it, but I want to nitpick what I think is wrong with it. 99% of the, those problems, though, fall at the feet of Ryan Murphy and his edit, because I just did not understand some of those choices, taking one of the best moments of the show and making them afterthoughts. He he has a tendency in this movie to take all of the most intimate moments and choose those as the moments that he wants to open up. And it blunts the emotional impact of the film so much in so many ways. I mean, you know, Tonight Belongs to You, which is a, a delightful number. And, it you know, it's fun to see Barry and Emma go shopping together. But it robs us of seeing just the two of them interacting that makes it so much more it, it makes the moment later when she asks her him to take her to the prom to be her date to the prom later it it, it robs that moment of emotional resonance because they're running out in the world and he's more interested in picking out the shoes that she's going to wear than getting to know her and, and if you're going to sacrifice nuance and musical justification for flamboyance and big musical moments, at least let us look at the freaking choreography. The way oh this God. film's dance is yes. a crime. Oh. It's it. You get a close up of a face and then a close up of a foot. It's it's mystifying. And then, like I was saying before about the production design, every single set is intentionally enlarged so that this way they can have this choreography. So let us see it. <laughs> you know, why over edit it? Oh, and that goes back to a comment that was made in the scene when Emma comes down the steps in that really ugly dress and they <laughs> act as if she has no sense of style. When in fact, when you see her dressed in high school, she has a terrific sense of style. That's why I love these costumes so much. And it doesn't fit. That's very inconsistent to say, oh, she can't dress herself, but she looks great the rest of the time. And then when you make that joke like, oh, we don't have sacks here, we have Kmart. But then they go to film Love Thy Neighbor at a really beautiful mall where in the show was a rural 7-Eleven. Like, that just doesn't fit. Don't tell me you're a town that only has a Kmart when you look like the King of Prussia Mall here. 
Or like your nicest restaurant is an Applebee's. Right. Okay, yeah, how? I'm so sorry, but where is the town in America where the nicest restaurant is an Applebee's, but they have like an H&M and a Mac store? Like, yeah, just, right. It doesn't yeah. make sense. But if you were going to lean into that, that's fine, but at least make me buy that you're this dingy little rural town and not obviously, you know, a big mall outside of L.A. Okay, well, can I just say for the record, because I feel like she is getting like the short end of the stick here in many, many, many ways. I really do think Joellen Pellman is a star. Oh, she's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. In fact, I think I preferred her, Emma, to Caitlin Kuhnen, who I think is absolutely great, too. But I thought Joellen was just a total revelation here in her first film role. I can't wait to see what she does next. When she does uh, Just Breathe, I was like, this is this is a great breakout performance. And she is doing so much that is being, unfortunately, just smothered by all the other stuff that isn't working. And as I mentioned before, like the scenes with her and Ariana DeBose, like I just want to dance with you with those pink leaved trees and everything. (laughs) Like that's the movie at its absolute best. And it's because those two are just, they're the ones I, I, I can't believe like they're the ones that just escape everything that Ryan Murphy is doing in this movie, they're the ones who uh, managed to get away unscathed. (laughs) That's going to let Nicole take this one. (laughs) Yeah. I have a lot of feelings on the way that they handled Emma's arc in this movie. Emma's actually one of my favorite, like musical theater characters of the past, maybe decade. And I think they completely ruined her character arc. And none of this I'd like to say is, uh, Joellen Perlman's fault. I think she did a very good job of what she was given. I think I lay this entirely at the feet of Ryan Murphy and the way that he directed her in this role. But the Emma from the stage show, the Emma that makes sense logically within this plot, starts out the story very much a wallflower. She doesn't want attention. She doesn't want to be involved in all of this. She just wants to go to prom with her girlfriend. That's all she's looking to do. Right. She doesn't want to become this big you know, face of this movement, symbol of uh, discrimination and prejudice and whatever. And she's actually very resistant to these Broadway people coming in and kind of trying to make her into this symbol. And so then over the course of the show, you get to see her come into herself to the point where whenever she does finally have this moment at the prom where she is the center of attention, when she finally posts this video and sort of steps up and says like, okay, yes, I will be the face of this. It's really moving. And her, you know, I think also like in the stage show, she's quite angsty. Like there's a lot of teen angst in the show as it's written. And Ryan Murphy didn't give us any of that. Just Breathe is, other than Alyssa Green, my favorite song in the show. And I, the fact that she smiled through that song, I'm like, I'm so sorry, babe, but I do not believe that you are someone who fantasizes about taking Xanax. Like, I don't see that you're stressed at all. And the way that they film it, where she's going through these things, like the dodgeball bit, I thought was so cringy and so on the nose. And it didn't allow for any nuance in the fact that, like, <laughs> That that's not what being bullied in high school is. And I just think that they ruined her arc because they didn't give her much of an arc. There's nowhere for her to sort of go from where she is in the beginning, where she's just sort of almost like seems a little bit like happy go lucky. Like she's like, okay. And I'm like, I just think that it really took a lot of the heart out of the show. And again, like I think Joellen is very talented. I think she sings all these songs beautifully, but I think that Ryan Murphy completely misunderstood the storyline that is actually at the heart of the prom. And that I think is the major reason other than James Corden's 
I was going to say existence. That sounds bad. Presence in this film. Why the film doesn't work for me. That's interesting that you said that, Nicole, because I think what I responded to more in Joe Ellen's performance is that this version of Emma seemed to have more confidence to herself. And not that that was a demerit in any way of the show, but I think it just felt fresh for me to see this other side of her, whereas the other well, one... Well, I think the thing is, if we have a confident Emma in the beginning, then this whole relationship and this whole storyline between Emma and Barry, where he tries to build up her confidence, where he tries to teach her how to... Uh, you know, that whole number where he wants to be the Glinda to her Alphaba doesn't make sense anymore because why does he need to do that? The Glinda to her Alphaba here isn't so much about the confidence. It's more like, you know, style guide. But that's the thing. She She's so stylish. I was like, God, I need to recreate all of her outfits right now. It's um, just that one moment when she puts on the dress. I mean, otherwise, she definitely has a look to her and yeah, it's definitely a style. Like, I, I yeah, I, I agree that that's also a misstep. And like what I was saying before in terms of them uh, getting away from like Ryan Murphy unscathed, I, I see what you're saying, Nicole. And I do think that that is maybe more of the show perspective, like kind of kind of coming in a bit, because I think from. I, I think from a writing standpoint, I think they they get the character uh, exactly where um, she needs to be. And I, I understand that she doesn't change throughout the course of this because it's all about the characters around her that change instead because of her. Um, I was just more so commenting on I, I her performance was never impacted by uh, Murphy's direction in a way that I felt like the other performers were more inconsistent. Like she was she was like the rock you know, of this movie for me from a performance standpoint that kind of like held everything in place. Yeah, agree that she is very good and one of the better performances in the movie. But can like like Nicole said with that, um the, the what they do to her character is just it, it's a she doesn't really have an arc. Because the movie has made it very, very clear that she's not the star it's the stars who are the stars and again like and i hate to i hate to do this but it is because ryan murphy took a show about two gay girls and made it about the the gay man because that is all he knows how to do is tell stories about gay men what what concerns me of you know we talk about all the technical stuff but all so much so many of his decisions undercut his performers and i think that's unforgivable mm-hmm. agreed i do want to defend ryan murphy here for a second because oh good luck um, why <laughs> I, i'm a big fan of ryan murphy's i really am i enjoy his television projects i like the american horror story series american crime story uh the politician i liked hollywood yeah he's done some good things here and there i really enjoy i think his best show on television is pose and when you say he only knows how to you know put the spotlight back on like the gay male characters. That is a show where he uses his that he produced. He, that that's he what produced. I was saying. He, he, he uses direct. He directed. I was going to say, yeah, you got to you got to make a distinction there, Michael, because I do think it's very important. He directed the first few episodes and then he stepped back, used his power as a producer to put a spotlight on trans women of a color. So I don't want everyone to think he's only going around working in one style. I think he does have the ability to branch out. And it's good to see that. That's a relatively new show. And I think right. it gives us hope for what he could be doing. And it's interesting that those three episodes have the most focus on the white, cis, straight characters. Those episodes that he directed. Regardless, his name is still on 
the show as a producer. He's still making calls, even if he's not actually, you know, but he directed this scene. movie. He did not produce yeah, this movie. It's about the direction. He doesn't know how to direct something that is not directly his experience. And it hobbles this movie. It hobbles the story it's trying to tell. And it, it, I, I, I'm sorry. Like, I love him and I, you know, respect him in many ways. And it's so frustrating because, like, he was able to retain the Broadway cast from the boys in the band because he thought it was so important that he have gay actors playing these roles in a film version. But then he goes and casts James Corden in this, in a part that like, frankly needs to be played by either an extremely talented actor, which James Corden though fine is not, or by a gay person who deeply understands the camp that is inherent in this performance and understands how to make that human. I want to uh, correct myself too really quickly. Ryan Murphy did produce this movie. I, I, I What I was mentioning before was exclusively yeah. produce, uh, which, you know, is not the case here. I do want to, at this point, um, get us to final thoughts because um, I do feel like we're treading over maybe familiar ground in some of our critiques here. And I do want to get maybe more to more specific uh, nitpicks or highlights. So uh, I'd want to kick it over first to Cody. Like, Cody, do you have like anything uh, regarding the prom uh, that we didn't mention that you would like to mention? Uh, not much else. Um, like I said, though, the look of it is very, uh, it's a lot. <laughs> and it's not distinguishing enough between the musical numbers and the non-musical numbers to be impactful in a switch. I mean, my boyfriend, when we were watching this, he w- he said uh, they look like Teletubbies, the way they're dressed in all like one color. It's just not really kind of thought out which is indicative and kind of like the rosetta stone for a lot of this movie it feels kind of rushed which knowing the way this was rushed into production doesn't really surprise me Mm. uh nicole a few final thoughts on this i am such a huge fan of this musical that i always knew that this movie was going to be a bit touchy for me especially i mean at least from the moment they announced ryan murphy as the director Uh, I will forever be thinking about another version of this movie that could have existed with a cast like Jane Krakowski, Titus Burgess, maybe directed by someone like Kenny Ortega, who is better at producing this sort of flashy musical while still giving you nice, intimate moments and being able to carry uh, character lines through. I, I also just have two other quick things. One is that whenever they read that New York Times review about Barry as FDR, uh, just know that's also me talking about James Corden as Barry. <laughs> <laughs> and two, was anyone else super thrown off whenever they show the theater in that like big opening scene and Wicked is on the marquee next to it? At the Broadhurst. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I'm so sorry, but n- no, absolutely not. Broadway <laughs> as like, Vegas for someone who's there, never been to Times Square. There are many shows that they could have thrown on that marquee and it wouldn't have thrown me that badly. But like Wicked being at the Gershwin, being uptown on 51st Street away from a lot of the rest of the shows, I feel like is such a thing that like if you're a theater person who has spent time in New York, you know that. Uh, that I was like, I'm so sorry, but I'm immediately taken out of this. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and apparently Les Miss is still running. I was not aware of this. Yeah, <laughs> lots of news. Loved <laughs> Uh, didn't know Wicked had, had moved. Didn't know Lamus was back. Uh, I'm not sure what universe this exists in, but it's certainly not ours. And I will say, I am still glad that this movie exists and that I'm glad that a lot of people 
um, in particular, like young queer people are going to get to experience this musical because I think that that's very important. But I really do hope that this gets followed up by the national tour that has been talked about of the stage show, The Prom, because I think that is a much better version of this material. And I would like for more people to get to experience it in its better form. And I hope that this movie doesn't turn people off of this musical, because I know if I had watched this as a teenager, I would have been like, oh, okay, well, the prom sucks. And there are things about this film that do suck, but the prom itself uh, is much better than this film, I think, shows it to be. And I hope that people will find that. Tom O'Brien. Well, as much as I like uh, the... uh, uh, big, big, big performances of uh, Streep and Kidman and Rannells. Uh, I was drawn most to the normal, everyday characters. And particularly, to me, the big surprise for, was uh, Keenan Michael Key. Uh, I think he delivers a yes. grounded performance that I just didn't expect coming from him. Um, sound mixing aside, I think he has a lovely voice. And he he... You know, it, it's that rare character, a straight man who loves Broadway, that he makes believable. It's it. I, it, I thoroughly bought that this guy uh, really has this love for for that, and and um, I have to say that uh, that uh, walk away from this um, with a lot of grumbles, but I think of his performance, and I was like, you know, it's not all bad. I still think they're mismatched as a pair, him and Merrill. Oh, I, I agree with Tom. I thought he was weirdly my MVP, which is like in a cast like this, when I'm saying that Keegan-Michael Key is the MVP, you kind of know that something went wrong somewhere a little bit, I think. Oh, individually, I think he is good. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I thought he was terrific. I am Mr. Hawkins. I am the straight man who loves the theater, and I love that line so much. I didn't uh, know that. And Carl, that's what I'm calling him now. Keegan and Merle, Curl, love it. Awful. Okay. <laughs> uh, let's now hear from Dan. I have so many more things to say about this movie. There's just so many things that don't make sense. In Merle's first big number, uh, the, she's like, there. all these Broadway people are staging this, you know, protest in the middle of a PTA meeting, and all of the parents just dutifully sit in their chairs and say nothing they just sit there and watch gotta suspend disbelief because it's a musical number Makes no sense but but carrie washington is up there and she is raising holy hell so like again like just just be consistent when emma has this line about it being so scary to trust barry so completely but we just got finished being told that she is such a strong and brave person um which is you know like again like it, ugh, i can't when there's a moment that she says, like, you know, this is so hard. Does every girl go through this? And that line is supposed to be about her nervousness about meeting with her girlfriend and coming out and, you know, being at a prom, you know, with people that may, you know, that have shown some animosity towards her. And instead in this, it comes across as she's just talking about, you know, like putting on a dress and going to the prom like it it, uh, there is a moment um when the girls are singing tonight belongs to you that they say they say when i strike a pose like thus and there are three beats on the music and they hit one pose and then that's it it zooms Um, in on their fingers 
Yeah, it zooms in on the fingers, and then Seriously. her foot <laughs> when it's moving. <laughs> but that said, most iconic prom dance since she's all that. <laughs> it's it's great. I love the uh, the Casey Nicola choreography. It <laughs> really is fantastic. A key line in this movie is when one of the students says, we don't have a drama program. And Andrew Reynolds replies, well, that explains your general lack of empathy. <laughs> and that ends up being a key moment for his character that is just completely breezed by. There is mm-hmm. no emphasis placed on it. It Like when it gets to the end and they say, you know, you should be our drama teacher. I'm like, what? They, I get completely forgotten about this line because it is just completely like just it's lazy races by it's lazy and uh, it makes me so bad why is emma putting up a poster for a prom that she doesn't even know is happening and it says that it's happening this sunday makes no sense (laughs) and and it's a cutaway that they didn't need to have It, it it makes no sense and like look i i know that i have been shitting on this movie a lot in this podcast and but it's because like the material is so good and has such strengths and some of those strengths do manage to come through a little bit, but so much of what this movie gets wrong, it it gets wrong because of a just general lack of consensus consistency of tone and lack of faith in the audience. It is a movie. It is a movie musical that in very weird ways feels ashamed to be a musical. And I say ashamed to be a musical because it, it feels like it has to go all in on this fantasy aspect in order to work. And it doesn't. And the moments of the prom that work so well in general are the ones where it is the more intimate moments where it's just someone singing what they feel because their feelings are too strong to be expressed through just speaking. And that is classic musical theater. And it gets so much of that wrong. And it is that it it just, it makes me so sad. Michael. Yeah, so I mostly went through the nitpicks on this podcast because most of you already know how I feel about this film overall. I am a fan. And the show is so incredibly heartfelt, smart, and funny. And while I only think 85 to 90% of the original book transfers, it does a lot of the heavy lifting here along with the performances. And 85 to 90% is really no slouch. That's obviously a majority. It's just not 100% of what worked on stage. So for as much fun as this film is, it never fully matches the energy of the musical I saw at the Long Acre. But there's really a lot to like, even if it's not the prom in its very best form. Okay, my final thoughts. I'm going to go through some bullet points here. Uh, The line where uh, the guys tell in Dee Dee and um, Barry, it's not the show. It's you two. You're just not likable. I was like, oh, Corden and Murphy, that line is directed at. (laughs) Um Every time Juilliard was mentioned for Trent Oliver and Corden, like, reacted to that, um, I, I actually, like, those are, like, the tiny moments where I, I did like James Corden was when he was going for um, some more slapstick comedy. Like, that Kmart uh, line where he takes the sip of the booze really quick out of the bottle. Uh, you know, like, that, that, was, that was genuinely funny and got a good chuckle out of me at times. But for the most part, I do think that he is uh, severely miscast in this film 
the line about how the Tony Awards don't vote for you, they vote for your brand. So true. That visual gag of the Tony Awards on the counter at the hotel is so dumb. I, I I do not buy for a single second that actors walk around with their Tony Awards ready to show off to get their way into anything. And I, I, I mm, mm-hmm, that's just nope. the top joke. You got the drama desk, you know, zinger at the end. But you could do you could do that through dialogue. You don't need to have the physical award there. It's stupid, Michael. No, I found it very funny. Meryl's only bad moment in this movie where she does not escape Ryan Murphy's uh, direction is the you owe me a house bit. That, that, that is my show. That wasn't just added by Ryan. I, I understand that, but I don't know why. Like that, she she is like hysterical in that uh, scene. I thought it was kind of funny. Yeah. I was laughing, and I don't mean hysterical in terms of funny. Sorry, Cody. I didn't write it. I just want to dance with you. The good choice for the final song. I felt everything I needed to feel at the end in terms of that just being the big number. Uh, I thought it was a really, really nice culmination of everything. The costumes, I think, are actually good in this movie, and I really do like the costumes a lot. Um, but then where your crown comes on, and I, oh, no. Yikes. Talk, and, 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 oh. Yikes. Just go high like Michelle Obama. I can't even, I, Michael, I can't even be reminded of it in any way. I can't. It just brings me too much too much physical pain to my body. <laughs> yeah, those are my final thoughts on the prom. Mixed bag overall. Oh, man, it's so crazy because I I watched this two times. And the first time I watched it, it was like everything I kind of expected it to be. And I said I was going to watch it a second time to give it another chance. And I did. And in terms of how I feel about it now, I am. I'm at a four out of ten. Oh, man. Tough, tough call, though, between that and a five. I'm at a four out of ten. Cody, where are you at? So it's funny because I have, you know, mostly critiques here, but I still do kind of lean mixed positive. I can't deny that when, you know, it's mostly unearned because of the weight of the movie up to this point. But seeing a bunch of visibly queer kids come to the prom at the end, that that did get to me a little bit. So I have to lean mixed positive and give it a six out of ten. Okay, Nicole. I was kind of teetering between a five and a six on this. I did cry at the end because, like Cody said, that moment did kind of get me. But in reflecting on it in the time, you know, like the day since I've watched it, it has soured even more for me. So I'm going to go with a five. Tom? I was flirting with a four. um, But thinking back on uh, Joellen Pillman and uh, Ariana DeBose and Keegan-Michael Key, uh, that those three push it up to a five for me. Okay. All right. Dan. Okay. So the first time I watched it, I was somewhere between a five and a six. I could have gone either way. So I watched it again. And the, like Cody said, the source of material kind of shone through. And I, you know, I have to admit that I did like it and i was at a six and that is my official grade on the site and then i watched it again before this and i yeah there are so many problems with it that i can't go with a six i'm at a five michael i think at its very best if this had been as great as the show it could have been a nine as it is i'm saying an eight because I'm still a fan of what it what I find does work. I've already watched it one and a half times, and I'm happy to have it exist in the world. Okay. Oh, and one final thought. Is it really, really that hard 
to cast high schoolers who are actually high schoolers? <laughs> Is it really that hard? Apparently. I'm tired of this in movies. I am tired, people. <laughs> All right. Moving away from uh, talk about the prom in that regard. Let's talk about its Oscar chances. So... I mentioned costumes before. I really do think that this is at a minimum going to get a costume design nomination, but there are a lot of prospects here. I I don't know what I see materializing because, you know, this is one of those situations where I, I, I wonder how much actors, especially within the Academy, are going to see themselves a little bit in this and they're going to go for it. And I mean, go for it hard. So... Let's talk about that. I mean, Michael, what are you thinking as of today? I'm going to be very realistic here as I guess the biggest fan of it on this podcast. That's why I asked you. I think it's <laughs> costumes and Merrill at the max. That's all you're looking at. I think it's going to do very well at the Globes. I think it could get a SAG Ensemble nomination. But when it comes to Oscars, you're looking at costumes and best actress. Absolute maximum. I agree. This is a Globes play three and three. Yeah. We all have to prepare yeah. ourselves for Golden Globe nominee James Corden. It's gonna happen. <laughs> it's it just what they do. Um, so sad. But yeah, I think given the year, um, Meryl could easily slip into that fifth spot, which is kind of a little bit up in the air at the moment. But you know, we're so early that there's no way to know for sure. But she's definitely definitely a contender and as she yeah. always is <laughs> yeah Meryl is always a threat for a nomination even when she like just announces that she's in something and this is very flashy it's very big it's very broad um they this she could slip into that fifth slot a la florence foster jenkins honestly and people are gonna say it's one of her worst nominations it's not it's, it's not. not even bottom five this no. is probably one of her better ones from the past decade it's better yeah. than out of africa yes it is <laughs> <laughs> I, I think uh, uh, costumes for me, um, where your crown could get into song. Mm-hmm. Better not. It, it, well, no, it, but it's, it, a, it, I hope not. it's a musical and people know that, oh, there's songs in the musical, but this is the only one that's eligible. They may vote for it. I would be beside myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, best song by decree by Royal Proclamation always has to have one abomination in it. That's just the way it goes. So this, <laughs> it could be worse. Yeah, yeah. You know, it could be the James Corden solo that plays after Where Your Crown. Mm-hmm. This oh, October. God. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, no. Well, yeah, no. I Netflix luckily has that thing in place where oh, it God. tells me to watch the next thing in like a countdown. So I never have to get that far. <laughs> Don't you want to see Barry performing at the Oscars? Oh, my God. I can't believe that I forgot to mention this. You 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 add all this material for Barry and his mom and you take away his line to Alyssa's mom about if you don't show your daughter love right now you may lose her, which is like maybe one of the most the most emotionally affecting moments of the show. Holy shit, that's in the show? Yep. Yeah. Yes. Yo, all this time I've been wondering why the transformation for Kerry Washington does not work for me at the end of this movie and how lazy it is. That single line right there. <laughs> you got to be kidding me. <laughs> oh, no. She starts walking away and he shouts it out and stops yeah. doing it. Oh, you got to be kidding me. Yeah. I'm like, and you've added this material. You could give it to Tracy Ullman for Christ's sake. Yeah. <laughs> right there. And they cut it. I don't understand. Well, here's here's my here's my big Oscar like kind of moment that stems from that. I think that if people are 
predicting this for like a best picture nomination i i just think it's too flawed i really no, do I, I, it's not happening it's so because like there there were a lot of positive reactions and i feel like a lot of people who have not seen the musical will certainly have a more positive reaction than those who have seen the musical just because the source material is so strong but then you have to take into account like academy members who have not seen the, the stage version and now what does that mean and, and besides the fact that like this is a musical that in so many ways as a film is things that a lot of people hate about musicals <laughs> <laughs> that i i just don't think it's gonna get into picture screen i the only above the line category it really has a shot in is is Meryl in lead i think it's going to perform just like hairspray where it gets the globe nominations potentially sag ensemble and when it comes to Oscars, look, if Meryl Streep had played Velma Von Tussle, she would have been nominated. So, you know, if that's the case with her being here, I think she's definitely in the mix. Costumes, like we said, but nothing else beyond that. I was thinking to myself, I'm saying, man, if the love for this is strong, you know, you have the sound mixing. And I know I know we can all, you know, groan, but I'm just saying that, like, you know, you have that. You also have production design which could translate over somehow there's a couple of other things that are on the table and it all depends on how much i do think the actors branch goes for this because i don't believe the crafts uh categories at the oscars are going to go for it necessarily i am leaning more towards a sole costume nomination with meryl in the mix like michael said that's that's where i'm at today and in terms of meryl being a threat to win the globe uh she's my predicted winner as of right now I don't even know if I'm ready to say that because you have a really competitive race there with Carrie Mulligan, Michelle Pfeiffer. Well, it depends on if uh, the prom does indeed get both the picture nomination, the court nomination. Like, I need to see it getting a lot of these nominations to support that prediction. Yeah. And when in doubt at the Globes, if it's a tight race, always go with the musical performance. Yeah. Yep. Yep. You know, and then, you know, in supporting, then everybody's involved and you're not going to get anything down there. Uh, Kidman could get a Globe supporting. They like to do that with the musical the comedy sometimes. Possible, I can also yeah. see her being that random SAG nomination, just like it happened was last year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think they're really going to respond to this in ensemble, maybe. All right. Any other thoughts? One yeah. last thought. Why didn't they release this during prom season? <laughs> <laughs> because there are no prompts this year. Because there are no prompts happening. That's true. <laughs> because it's yeah. after the Oscar eligibility window, Cody. Oh, yeah. <laughs> The next bet was to release it during the holidays for good, wholesome family entertainment. <laughs> and they weren't quite done with it when the pandemic hit. So they, they needed to, you know, touch it up when, when they could. I'm just saying. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a good point, though. <laughs> All right. Cody, where can they find you on the Internet? I am on uh, Twitter, Letterboxd, and Instagram at CodyMonster91. Tom? I am on Twitter at Thomas E. O'Brien. Michael Schwartz? On Twitter at mschwartz95. Dan Bear. I am on Twitter at Dan on film. And Nicole Ackman. I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Nicole Ackman 16. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to our review of The Prom here on the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us anywhere where you listen to podcasts. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. And if you want to leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts, rate us five stars. Let us know what you think of the show. And if you're feeling even more generous than that, head on over to Patreon, where for $1 minimum a month, you will get exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening. As always, we shall see you all next time.
You've watched them in unforgettable adventures, love affairs, and tragedies. Now it's time to hear their own remarkable stories. From the makers of Death of a Rockstar and Death of a Sports Star, this is Death Ready. of a Film Star. And action. Starring Heath Ledger, Marilyn Monroe, Chadwick Boseman, Robin Williams, Carrie Fisher, and Bruce Lee. Search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. You've seen them tell stories. Now it's time to tell theirs.